welcome to Purple Celebration. The idea for this podcast and video series is to recap the events of Celebration 2019. That's the four-day festival that celebrates the music of Prince, the life of Prince, and takes place at Paisley Park Studios in Chanhassen, Minnesota. Chanhassen is one of the suburbs of Minneapolis and is the area that Prince made home for 40 years of his life. Since Prince's passing, the celebration has taken place annually. It brings together people who worked with Prince. It brings together people who may have managed Prince, may have been friends with him throughout his life. And they speak to Prince the man rather than Prince the the musical genius, the myth that everybody has heard about. To add a little bit of texture to Prince's legacy, these people speak to how he was as as a human being, how the process of him creating all of that music took place, what went into that, the sacrifices, the, the shows of genius that might have happened. These people were there. They were around Prince at that time. They were as close as they could be of all the people that uh, were around Prince. And they speak to that. It's an incredible four-day event. You get to also look around Paisley Park, which obviously now is a museum, but the studios are still open to uh, visitors to to have a walk around. You can go into uh, the video editing suite. You can see the atrium. So it's it's a an amazing thing that you're you're given access to Paisley Park, and it comes to life again, as opposed to being a museum throughout the year where the tours are very reverential. They're they're designed to give you an insight into what that building's history is. It's quite amazing when it's opened up to everybody. For the celebration, music is played in that venue again. The museum tours take on a slightly different flavour because, of course, you've got fans who want that extra bit than than just a standard museum tour, so they they go out of their way to give you a little bit more knowledge. Um, Overall, it's a fantastic four days. Now, let me lay out what I intend to do with this podcast, this videocast. Let me lay out what the, the episode guide is going to look like. In this episode, I'm just going to introduce myself. I'm going to talk up to the events of how I became a Prince fan, where that that fandom took me. I'm also going to speak to the time just before the celebration kicked off, where I was in Minneapolis and in the Minnesota area, prior to the celebration formally starting. Then we'll do one episode per day of the celebration. I'm going to speak at length about each of the days. I'm one of the few people, I don't believe there were many of us, maybe a dozen or two, who attended both sides of the celebration tracks. Now, just let me uh, give a little bit of background information there. The celebration event each year is split into what are known as tracks. Two different periods of time in each day where people are asked to attend as a way to, to get more people through. There are people on the morning track and there are people on the evening track. And each day, the two tracks alternate between morning and afternoon. It's a way of them, I suppose, getting more capacity through. But it also allows for different schedules. If you know that you've got a concert the night before, you might want to have a little bit of a sleep in. You might 
want to recharge your batteries a bit more. So you'll pick a track that suits some of the events that are going on around Minneapolis that perhaps you're not you're not willing to miss, you want to want to partake in. So the two tracks system has been in place uh, since since the start of the celebration, which the, for those of you uh, who are fairly new to the idea, the first celebration started in 2017, the anniversary, the first anniversary of Prince's passing. It's now in its third year, its third annual event. So I did attend celebration last year. I did not attend the first celebration in 2017. A good friend of mine and I, we went out to Minneapolis in the March, just a few weeks ahead of the celebration. And we wanted to get a feel for Minneapolis without the fans, the city that Prince was an inhabitant of, a lifelong Minnesotan. I wanted to see Minneapolis. I wanted to see uh, the Chanhassen suburb. I wanted to see Paisley Park. Uh, I wanted to see all of the famous landmarks that, that people tend to uh, go visit. So the, the houses uh, from Purple Rain, uh, Tyker's house that she inherited from her father, John L. Nelson, the plots of land that used to hold uh, Prince's houses before, for whatever reason, he had a habit of, of tearing down these houses. So there's quite a few addresses in and around Minneapolis, North Minneapolis, uh, Chanhassen, Eden Prairie, uh, Henderson, which is a small town south southwest of, of Minneapolis, where Take Me With You, uh, the infamous motorbike scene and Apollonia jumping in, not Lake Minnetonka, uh, took place. So there's lots of places that you can go see. Now, the first year we attended, we didn't stay around for the celebration. Last year, I really enjoyed the celebration. I was a little disappointed that because of the track that we were on, we actually missed Maite. So Prince's wife came, spoke, I believe, uh, joined in in the NPG performance, and yet we missed her. Now we were on VIP on the on that track. I wouldn't have expected that somebody could attend, and we would not see them, given that the VIP ticket is twice as much as, as general admission. So I was a bit disappointed with that. When I booked for this year, originally, I again uh, selected the VIP because I didn't want to, to not partake in, in something. After a month or so, I started to get the, the nagging feeling that there was still a possibility that I would miss something I might not hear, something that I was meant to. So I managed to purchase, in addition, uh, a second pass for the other track, and that was in general admittance. Now, I'll, I'll speak more to that later, but what it gave me was a somewhat unique insight in that not only did I get to see the same thing twice, I got to hear slightly different uh, answers, slightly different questions, but if it was the same question, there was a touch of nuance in the way that the, the answer changed between, between sittings. And that was very interesting when we get to people like Jesse Johnson or The Revolution, who were part of the, the panel interviews this year. So bear with me. I just want to give you a little bit of my history. Then we'll go through the projected episode list. Then I'll free you up to go and visit episode one, where we'll talk through day one of the celebration. 
I also just want to speak a little bit about the th events that were going around in Minneapolis, going on in Minneapolis, uh, in the days preceding the celebration. So I have my trusty notebook with me. Um, that was essential to, to capture everything from the days of the celebration. So let me give a little bit of background to me and, and how big a Prince fan I am, um, just to add a little bit of colour to all of this. So my name's Chris. I come from uh, Liverpool, England, originally. Uh, I work and live around London. Um, I became a Prince fan in around about 1993. Uh, my brother is a huge music fan and would often bring home CDs uh, back when CDs were the way that you listen to music. Um, he brought back the Hits Volume 2, I believe, because that had Purple Rain on. Very quickly, we moved on to uh, adding Hits 1 into that. Those of you who are, are big Prince fans will know that they were the, the early hits um, compilations that Warner Brothers have put together, just as the relationship between uh, him and, and the record company was starting to become frayed. So as a way for them to, to capitalize and get some, some much needed money in after somewhat lackluster performance of the Symbol album, the hits were released. So we became big, big fans because of the the variety of the music and also the caliber of the music. You, I'm sure you're all familiar with, with the hits one and two, but these are absolute chronicles of, of Prince's abilities up until the 1993 era. From then we disappeared down into his back catalogue, which at that time we'd, we'd been through the commercial success era and were probably in the last throes of that with the, the advent of the gold experience uh, just about to drop. So we were able to look back right through the, the, the commercial peak of Purple Rain. We were able to look back at uh, Dirty Mind, Controversy, all of the, the nascent albums as you could feel culminating in 1999 that this talent was, was going to be something special. So we were able to look back on that in hindsight and also consume them at quite a, a fast rate. Once we got through Purple Rain, it was just mind-blowing. Uh, it was, you know, headbuster, as, as uh, Mike Dean would say on the Prince podcast. The podcast on Prince, sorry. <laughs> um, it was head-busting that you would have a guy who was able to, to go from Purple Rain to Around the World in a Day to the Sounds of Parade, which could be my favourite Prince album. Then Sign of the Times, which was just absolute testimony to his genius. Uh, Love Sexy, an, an album I'm not actually a major fan of, but I understand uh, why a lot of people are. Um, but we'll have that discussion another time, I'm sure. And then we were able to touch into Graffiti Bridge, the Batman album, Diamonds and Pearls, of course, I'd heard that on the radio. I'd heard Sexy MF, Cream, Diamonds and Pearls. I'd heard lots of songs that I thought were very good, but I hadn't quite, due to my age and the availability of music being so much more limited than pre-internet, that 
I wasn't able to join the dots that this was all the same guy. So it was amazing to us as we went back through that catalogue. And then in 1996, when Emancipation was released, it was bought uh, as a birthday gift for my brother. And it stayed in, in our CD player for over 12 months. Uh, at least one of those discs was on rotation in the, the multi-CD system. And that was a fantastic time. I th- still think that Emancipation is, is vastly underrated for the, the breadth and calibre of the music that is on there. It's not Purple Rain 2. Of course it isn't. But a man with his own studio going in, writing songs that were very much of the time that he was in. So disc two is, is very much an ode to, to Maite and, and their new marriage. I thought uh, disc three, at the time, more of those experiments missed than hit. Yet when I look back now, I see that it was very standard for, for Prince Music to not appeal to you straight away, for you to have to catch up to where he was. And I, I just think that's a, a, an underrated album and everybody should go back and revisit that. But it really, it, it marked a point where we went from being casual fans, I think, it, it deepened then. I certainly became a super fan at that point because I started to collect anything I could get my hands on. Now, there were record furs that would happen uh, in Liverpool and particularly around the university where my brother was at the time and I would soon join him, where bootlegs weren't marked as bootlegs. So you could go, you could you could buy these albums that, to all intents and purposes, looked official. And it wasn't as easy as just going on Google now, bringing up a discography and knowing that these aren't uh, legitimate. But at the time, they were presented in such a way that you wouldn't know. I remember uh, picking up the bootleg Charade, and it was absolutely mind-blowing that hers outtakes and songs from around that era of Parade and going into Sign of the Times. And this was good enough to be released, and yet it wasn't. So I started to take advantage of uh, the internet and the fact that downloads were starting to get to a speed where you could actually transfer music en masse between between people. Uh, there were quite a few places that you could go where you could just collect and consume a lot of these uh, unreleased and unofficial recordings. Back then, everybody seemed to be doing it. It didn't really seem to be uh, anything that was being stamped out. In a, in a long-winded way, it broadened my appreciation of prints because it showed how much music he'd actually created. And it was quite fantastic, the, the sheer volume that he was able to produce. So after Emancipation and the Crystal Ball, we, we got the version bundled with The Truth. Um, I know some people received Karma Sutra in place or in addition to The Truth, but it was at that point that we then got to see Prince live for the very first time. And that was at Wembley Arena in 1998, the Hidden Run Tour, as it was called, I believe, with Shaka Khan as the support act and Larry Graham touring alongside Prince. And I feel very privileged to have seen that for the simple fact it was the last time where Prince was the showman of 1984. It was the last time the splits 
would come out, uh, he was still very much the, the the man of fifteen years earlier. He was still putting on that show. He was still he was still performing as if it was sign of the times or love sexy. That that high intensity, athletic, splits laden, do everything on the stage performance. And I remember as we were traveling back from the gig, my only criticism to my brother of what was you know, the, the greatest concert I'd ever seen at that point, my only criticism was he didn't play enough guitar. And we were remedied of that in 2002 when the next time Prince came to, to London for a significant tour was the One Night Alone tour. And of course, the musicality was very much at the, the forefront of, of those uh, those shows and Prince played virtually all the guitar uh, and certainly during those performances stayed largely away from the hits but when he did touch on them it was so musically fantastic that uh, it, it probably ranks as my favourite tour. It was also after the One Night Alone performance at uh, Hammersmith Odeon in London that we went to our first after show gig. Now we'd missed out in '98 when he played Café de Paris, and we couldn't we couldn't get entry. So this time we were adamant. As soon as they announced, we'd be straight down there. Now, if I remember right, Prince had played Hammersmith the night before, and I'd heard that everybody went to the New Marquee at Leicester Square, and it had been announced over the Tannoy. So after this gig, I said to my brother, "Wait for the the Tannoy. I'm sure he's going to announce again." And right enough, they did, and it was. The, the new marquee again so we we bolted down there and we saw our first after show gig now I've heard it since on soundboard recordings and audience recordings but at the time it was so loud I thought my ears were going to bleed <laughs> there was distortion everywhere he must have been popping the limiter with uh, every single instrument every single microphone was just set to ultimate pickup so it was not the most enjoyable experience uh, that I've ever had at Prince Gig. But that after-show magic was there. It was something special when you knew you were going to see something that wasn't rehearsed, it wasn't the standard set list, that this thing was because they wanted to play music, because he needed to play music and just jam, that you were going to see something that, you know, he would be calling out these songs as and when he wanted to just I want this track I want that track and the band would have next to no idea what the next song coming would be so that was uh, our first ever after show gig from 2002 onwards of course Prince suddenly reascended into popular culture uh, following his, his amazing Grammy performance with Beyonce and he started to become a lot more mainstream again uh, we were blessed in London to have the 2007 Planet Earth tour where Prince did 21 nights at the O2 Arena over a space of about seven weeks, I think it was, um, through July, August and September of, of 2007. And I was very, very lucky to just be living a few minutes away from that venue. So I managed to go to 11 of the concerts, largely uh, completely different set lists every night, uh, save the, the standard songs that need to be hit for an audience to be happy, the Purple Rains, the Little Red Corvettes, Kiss, such a, such songs as those. But largely the, the set lists were completely at the whim of Prince on the night. 
and I got to see some amazing um, performances, uh, renditions of, of songs that I never thought I'd be alive, and that was fantastic. The real kicker for that tour for me was the after-show performances that he would make at the Indigo. So the O2 Arena has a small club next to it uh, called Indigo 2, and that probably has a capacity of about 2,500. The main arena of the O2, of course, is 18,500, 19,000, a standard stadium size, arena size. So it was amazing uh, to, to see him in quite an intimate venue, but the anticipation when you would arrive of will he play, will he not play, was fantastic. So for those uh, several weeks that he was over here in London, I attended 14 uh, evenings at the after shows, and by my reckoning, he played seven of my 14. I think he attended a couple of times and he let the band play. So, you know, the, the MPG, Holmes, Shelby, they might be given the night. Uh, Beverly Knight was, was given one evening of the after show. Um, and then it all culminated at the end of that, that stint of 21 nights with a concert that was famously attended by Amy Winehouse. Uh, Beverly Knight also performed that night. Um, and it was just an amazing tour, even though I never got to, to go to that final night. I've, I've heard recordings of it, and it, it certainly lived up to the, the evenings that I saw. Um, the one that stands out in my mind was the, the night where he did the trio. So it was Prince on, on guitar and vocals, and we had Josh and Cora Dunham on bass and, and drums, respectively. And they tore through, not at quite the level of musicianship as The Undertaker, but they tore through some great, great songs. Uh, Curtis Mayfield, Sign of Family Stone, Prince's Own Songs. And that was just such a, a display of musicality that I'd never in the flesh seen that uh, I think from that moment on I was, I was captivated in a way that even though I'd been a, a huge fan in the run-up to that, you know, this guy was something special. I was going to go out of my way whenever I had to, to, to see as much of him as possible. And that 21 nights in London obviously gave me an opportunity to put that into practice, but it really carved uh, into, into wood the, the view that I would have for the remainder of Prince's life. Is, is 21 nights at the O2 finished. Then a few years later, he came to do a festival in Britain, which was the Hop Farm Festival. Now, if I say music festival to anyone, uh, a big British music festival, worldwide, world famous, it will be Glastonbury. You know, America has Coachella. We have Glastonbury. And I believe that the Evis family who run Glastonbury have been chasing Prince for, for many, many years, knowing that he was the number one act in the world from live performance. And yet he'd never signed or, or said yes to it. I think they'd come close to signing him, but he'd never agreed to it. So out of the blue, he just announces he's going to play this this festival in uh, the southeast of England, a, a county called Kent. And he was going to play in Kent, which just happened to be, after I'd, I'd moved house since the, the O2 stint, happened to be 10 minutes south of, of where I lived. So I've been very, very lucky uh, geographically to just be in the right place at the right time. So that concert went over extremely well uh, down in Kent. And then Prince uh, carried on touring, doing some other festivals in, in Europe. 
and the next time I saw him then was 2013 at the Montreux Jazz Festival. Now, Montreux is absolutely beautiful. Um, it's in the Geneva region. It's on uh, what we call Lake Geneva or Lac Le Mans. And at that time of the year, there's, there's very few places in the world that are as pretty as, as Montreux. And I can understand why Prince, having played there once before, came back and dominated with, with a three-day uh, series of concerts. So we were lucky enough to attend days two and three, which I likened day two to uh, a James Brown sort of performance, band leader performance. And day three was very much the, the European premiere of Third Eye Girl, the Jimi Hendrix-influenced Prince is the Guitar God at the front. And I absolutely loved those performances. Prince came to Britain in 2014 again and did a series of guerrilla gigs uh, with Third Eye Girl that were very late announced, late notice, uh, quickly put together gigs at some iconic venues in and around London. Um, they became quite the ticket to have in London and it was February, it was, it was really quite cold. So um, it really, you know, split the, the dedicated from, from those who aren't dedicated when it came to queuing in those sorts of, of temperatures. But again, we got to see him in, in some quite small venues and just he seemed to be having the time of his life with, with the Third Eye Girl group. So I saw him do, do some of those uh, guerrilla gigs. And then I also saw him later that year when he he graduated up uh, taking Third Eye Girl into stadiums. So arenas, these were, you know, 15, 20,000 seat uh, capacity. So I just resigned my job at, at the time and I, I knew I had time on my hands. And the next thing he announces all of these, these concerts and it was perfect timing for me to be able to follow him up to Birmingham, uh, to Leeds, uh, as well as, as what he'd done in London. And the one show that I think was probably the highlight of that entire tour, which was Manchester Academy, which we've all seen clips of the, the amazing version of uh, Something in the Water Does Not Compute, was part of, of that section of, of the tour. And I, I really should have, have made the effort to, to go to Manchester. Um, but life on the road, following Prince around, it was, it was quite, uh, quite tough. But that was a, an amazing time. That, unfortunately, uh, that, that tour was the last time that I, I got to see him live because even though he had announced that the piano and the microphone was going to come to Europe and he'd actually put dates out for, for London, uh, for Britain, and I was I was poised to, to start purchasing some tickets because of the, the climate uh, and the, this, there were safety reasons around Europe. There was a lot of uh, terror-related things happening, uh, particularly uh, there was you know, infamous thing in, in France where people burst into a live music venue um, as, as part of a, a terror campaign. And for all those reasons, and, and I believe he was right to do so, Prince diverted the tour and went instead to Canada and then Australia and New Zealand. Um, and as we all know, as he was nearing the end of, of the return American leg, um, he passed away, so we, we never got to see him do the piano and microphone tour 
in, in Europe. I did contemplate going to the January uh, kickoff of what will become the Piano and Microphone Tour, that uh, gala performance that he did at Paisley Park. And I was hearing, you know, Mike Dean on his podcast was going, but it was January, it was Minnesota, you know, it's minus 20, wherever the, the temperature might be. And for whatever reason, uh, I, I talked myself out of going. And I, I regret that to this very day. I should have gone. So that's the, the history of, of me as a Prince fan, all the live gigs, obviously the music over the years. Uh, once we discovered it, my brother and I in, in 93, it became part of my everyday life. Um, I started to, to dip into the unreleased and the vault works the ones that were floating around. So this has been my life for, for 25 years now. By the time uh, Prince passed away, I was 36 years old and I had seen Prince 36 times. And it's interesting that the whole numerology that occurred within uh, the, the, the Prince legacy and, and throughout his career, numerology had an importance. And I, I just think it's one of those coincidences but it's it's a nice coincidence that uh, the numbers tot up and and match by the time he passed let's move on now to what i think this this podcast and video series is going to look like so i would like to do an episode on each of the days of the celebration then i would like to do an episode where I talk about the things that I liked, the things that I thought had improved, or how they compared to the previous year's celebration. Some suggestions on how I think they could uh, make changes for next year. Um, how to perhaps differentiate between the VIP and general admission uh, a little bit more to, to justify the change in price or the difference in prices. And then I'd like to do a monthly episode leading up to celebration 2020 and i want to build uh, that anticipation and the enjoyment of looking forward to the, another celebration together i want us to to chart when the deposits are asked for when they're announced who's announced what dates are we looking to be able to fly out there what could we do uh in the days in and around the celebration in terms of other people putting on music performances concerts, uh, screenings of movies, all of that great stuff that this year I got to enjoy at the celebration and during my two weeks out in, in Minnesota. And I really want to, to speak to that and, and we can look forward to that together. I just want to sign off this episode by just briefly talking about what happened in the time coming up to the celebration. The celebration this year, as we all know, was uh, Thursday, April 25th through to Sunday, April 29th. So a four day event. Now, I arrived in Minnesota on the 16th and I'm just going to refer to my notes here. Uh, I arrived on the 16th. I'm going to put some little clips in and around some, some photographs to, to make this quite interesting for you. Uh, for those of you listening on the podcast, I'll do my best to describe on the 17th which was the Wednesday, I went to the Mall of America to see the Hard Rock Cafe display that is there. Uh, there are three costumes that Prince wore uh, on display in cabinets there. 
there are instruments for other Minnesotan musicians that are on display there. So for those Prince fans, we've got Rhonda's bass, we've got Jesse's uh, guitar. There are quite a few bits and pieces that are available in that uh, Mall of America Hard Rock Cafe to see. It's worth a stop, if only for the Mall of America, which is by far the largest I've ever seen. Um, I went there three different times during my visit, and I still didn't see everything. I mean, it's it's very, very large, as you would expect to you know carry the moniker of the Mall of America. Also on that uh, Wednesday the 17th, I quickly popped past uh, the Chanhassen Cinema. Now, this is the cinema that was... It's, I think it's one block along from, from Paisley Park. Uh, it's somewhere where Prince would often take uh, fans who had turned up at Paisley for one of his Saturday night concerts or performances. And if he liked a movie, um, he would often throw them all in a minibus and they would go over to Chanhassen Cinema and he would pay for a screening of a movie that he thought they should see. Now, infamously, I, I believe he did this with The Matrix, um, but there were, there were other movies. Now, having read back on in the day on, on Prince.org that Prince was doing this with fans, it always piqued my, my curiosity as to, you know, what must that have been like? What, what's this cinema that is magically over, over the road from Paisley Park? So I went in myself. Uh, I bought a ticket for uh, a film that was showing there. I was the only person in the auditorium, which was very strange. It's a, a nice cinema. Uh, it's a little rundown, truth be told. Uh, it's not. It's it's certainly the auditoriums look like they haven't changed in thirty years. Um, the screens were, you know, of of a of an age. They're they're certainly not. It's certainly not uh, the, the sound qualities that we would expect these days. Um, but it was interesting. So you know, it's a suburban cinema. And after I'd finished watching the the film. Uh, that I'd, I'd gone in to see. I came out and there's a, a young lad, maybe 17 years old, working there. And I said, did you know that Prince used to come here? He's got those studios just to, along the way there. And he said, uh, oh yeah, I, I never worked here. Too young. You know, we are three years after all, after his passing. He said, but we have a special here, which was uh, a large popcorn with... Now, I, I would call them in England chocolate raisins, uh, so raisinettes maybe, uh, thrown in with the popcorn and two sodas, and that was called the, the Prince Special or the Purple Special. I can't quite recall the uh, the terminology, but I thought that was interesting, that there's uh, just a little bit of, of a, a nod to him uh, on the menu there. On Wednesday the 17th, I did Mall of America in Chanthassen Cinema, I took a, a little day off to, to rest and, and get over the, uh, the the travel on the 18th. And then on April 19th, I did the ultimate tour at Paisley Park. So for those of you who have not been to Paisley, um, but you might have seen on the website, there are several different types of tours that you can take. There's a, a general tour, uh, which I believe is about $60. Then there's a VIP tour. And now it's graduated up. There is an ultimate tour. The ultimate tour costs $160 and it's three hours long. It's the most you can see at Paisley by way of a, a genuine tour. So the additions that you get over what used to be the, the top package, the VIP, 
is some access to Studio C, which uh, for those of you who are familiar with, with some of the photos that have come out uh, since it opened up as a museum, there is a room dedicated to Purple Rain uh, and First Avenue. And in that room, you can, you can see a window to a small room set off and that's the, the control room, Studio C control room. Uh, so that is new to this tour. Inside of that room, there is a guitar given to Prince by George Benson, the, the jazz guitarist, very famous. Um, you can see that guitar on the Raven to the Year 2000 DVD, the, the pay-per-view event. You can see Prince playing that during the whole Sly and the Family Stone section. Um, very, very nice guitar. And that's just mounted on the wall in the Studio C is uh, the second smallest of the studios. There is another studio, Studio D, that we don't get to see. I don't know what that room does anymore, but it does share a lounge with Studio C. So from the control room of Studio C, you can look into this lounge and then Studio D will be off to the side. Now, I find uh, that... In addition to, to the extra access that you get into Studio C, there were also more video clips um, shown to us in the video editing booth, which is just off the atrium next to uh, Prince's office in, in that main throughfer of, um, of Paisley. So as part of the, the Ultimate Tour, we were played uh, clips of Celebration 2017, the first ever Celebration. And they, they played somewhere around 10 or 15 minutes of, of dialogue of people telling stories up on the, the stage, uh, up on the soundstage. That for me was a real head buster because now we have proof that they are recording these. They are good enough to broadcast. They are good enough to package up and stream out or to sell to people. So it's interesting that maybe the, the estate is holding this one back. Um, until they can they can do something uh, and, and make some some good revenue from that, but that was great to see that they are recording them. They also showed uh, some clips of Prince performing at sound checks, and then there was a nice clip from the Manchester Academy, the Third Eye Girl, 2014 Hidden Run, and it was that something in the water does not compute. It was the full clip with that amazing guitar solo that that Prince. Uh, goes into and frenzied guitar attack so that was that was great to see and then the final extra bit is as well as they give you extra time in each of the rooms to make up the three hours there was a nice uh opportunity at the end to hold the original 1978 bass cloud now the the cloud bass guitar if i remember correctly 1978 they're out in, in California, probably somewhere around uh, the Oakland area. And Andre sees that bass guitar for sale, says to Prince that he really loves it, but he can't afford it. It's too much money. To which Prince kind of holds up his Warner Brothers check and he's like, well, I can buy it. So he purchases it. Andre then gets to use it on uh, the early performances, the early music videos. You can see Andre holding this this brown wooden uh, bass guitar, the the cloud bass, and that when they came to uh, film Purple Rain was the inspiration for the white cloud 
guitar that, that Prince uses, the, the guitar that Apollonia buys and gives him as a gift. So it's quite an iconic bass guitar, and obviously it, it sparks and creates this this part of the legacy, the, the white cloud guitar. So it was interesting to be able to hold that. Um, they also give you iced drink, uh, a slush drink, um, that Prince was was very much a favour of. I just remember it had mango, turmeric, and maybe a little bit of ginger in it. Um, but it was beautiful, and apparently it was one of Prince's favourites. Now, it doesn't sound like it's worth an extra sixty dollars over the VIP, um, and it's it's hard to it's hard to justify some of the prices for these things. Um, I I kind of reconcile myself uh, the the cost of these things by just saying if it helps the estate stay profitable in these difficult few years until all of his affairs are, are sorted and there's a long-term plan in place, then if I can afford to, I'm going to pay because I can't see any other use for that building other than as a, as a, a museum and a monument to Prince's talent. If it was suddenly refactored and became offices or a working studio and they, they stripped out all of the the remnants of Prince, I just think that would be absolutely criminal. And whatever we can do as fans to, to keep that open, I think we should do. So that was Friday the 19th. I took the ultimate tour for three hours at Paisley Park. On Friday the 20th, I did some other bits and pieces and I tried to drive down to uh, Henderson, which is where they, they filmed uh, Take Me With You. Uh, that's a southwest of Minneapolis. It's probably about half an hour outside of of downtown. Um, it's quite rural and obviously the take me with you scene with Apollonia on the back of the bike going through these country roads, you know, cows in, in pasture. But it's quite interesting because it's also where uh, she actually jumps in the lake. Uh, the not Lake Minnetonka. I went last year and it was easy enough to get there. This year, because it's right next to and it's on the river, the river had burst its banks and it was impossible to get anywhere near Henderson within a mile of, of the actual area that uh, all of that filming took part. So I, inadvertently I ended up driving halfway there, trying to drive around to get to it and then had to abort that. So the next day was... Saturday the 20th, uh, I didn't do much on the Saturday other than some personal bits and pieces and really just wanted to collect my energy for what was going to be a busy Sunday because Sunday had uh, a purple rain viewing at the Parkway Theatre. The Parkway Theatre showing the original 35mm pressing of Purple Rain as it would have been shown in any theatre in the country back then was a real, real delight. I deliberately sat at the very back of the auditorium because I'm sure it's the same for you guys. We've seen Purple Rain many, many times as, as Prince fans over the years. I really wanted to see the audience watch Purple Rain rather than me just watch it on my own. So I sat at the back. I was able to see the reactions. I, I saw every generation being represented, which was quite interesting. There were uh, families who I think had underestimated maybe some of the content of the movie um, and that was quite interesting to see. So Purple Rain is a movie for me that 
It's aged well in that the musical content and Prince's musical performances still take your breath away. Even as a fan, he's still electric, and I doubt those performances will ever, ever age. But the rest of the movie speaks to a much harder period in time. It speaks to a, a darker period in time. I mean, we've got domestic abuse. We've got Prince himself uh, striking Apollonia a couple of times in the movie. Uh, even though there's redemption at the end of that, I think with modern sensibilities, it never really leaves you that, you know, there's a lot of women are being mistreated in this movie. Plus, it's sexual. It's it's Prince, you know? So to watch an entire family in one of the rows in front of me, aging, you know, 14 up until 20, their parents couldn't cover the kids' eyes enough <laughs> to stop them from seeing uh, Prince and Apollonia getting up to what they were getting up to. So that was quite funny. It was also great to hear whenever Prince was uh, sexy or cute, all the women cooing. And then once you saw the music, everybody's cheering because, of course, the performances are fantastic. So it was great to see Purple Rain being screened in the way it originally was and the way it was meant to be seen in a cinema. So that was fantastic. So that day, uh, after I'd done that, I also went and just had a little walk downtown, uh, did some photos at First Avenue, some photos at uh, the site of the old Glam Slam Club, went uh, past the Dakota, and just generally milled around downtown. Now, that was Easter, Easter Sunday. And I thought that was quite an interesting view into, into Minneapolis, because... Most people would be together as families. They would be doing things uh, around uh, their actual homes. So very few people were downtown. Um, I felt quite bad because there were quite a lot of homeless people around. Um, obviously, most of the stores are shut. So I just quickly got in, took a few photos, had a quick walk, and then uh, went back to, to where I was staying. Spent a few hours waiting to uh, attend then bunkers to see Dr. Mambo's combo. Now, the combo is infamous in, in Prince law because um, Prince found many of his, his band members from the late 80s onwards playing in the combo. So Michael B, the drummer, Tommy Barbarella on keys, Sonny Thompson has been a regular at uh, during the combo. There are many uh, projects that have, have been influenced. He, at one point he took the entire house band uh, including Margie Cox and Julius Collins and he made the MC Flash project, Warden in the Prison of Love. Margie Cox, a great singer. So there's there's a lot of history and uh, Prince would often just go to bunkers as Michael Bland uh, would believe. He really just loved Margie's voice and as, as somebody who went to uh, to see the combo this year I can attest to that she still sounds fantastic as does uh, Juice Julius Collins so it was great uh, for me to go on, on Sunday night and see them they play every Sunday and Monday at Bunkers Bunkers is in the North Loop of Minneapolis on uh, I believe North Washington Ave and I went back on Monday because I really wanted to see them again then we start to get uh, a lot closer to the celebration so on the Tuesday, I did a, a non-Prince thing. Slightly related to Prince, but definitely a, a non-Prince event. I went to see Mick Sterling 
do his tribute to Bruce Springsteen at Dakota Jazz. Now, the Dakota Jazz Club is one of my favourite venues in the whole world. It's a fantastic small venue. Everywhere is a good seat. The sound is great. And the thing for me that really tops it is you can have a really nice evening, you can have a really good meal, and you're never far from the people who are on the stage who are performing. It's just an absolutely amazing venue. And I can see why Prince was a big fan. And uh, you can see the, the, the table that he used to reserve uh, on the, the, the top balcony there at Dakota when you go. So that was a really nice evening for me to, to just go see some music or hear some music that I really enjoy. In addition to Prince, of course, I, I like other music. And Mick Sterling did a great job with his 11 band members uh, of recreating that Bruce Springsteen sound. On the 24th Wednesday, the day before the start of the celebration, it really, really kicked into gear. So during that day, I went to see uh, the Capri Theatre, the, the venue where Prince made his first live performance following his signing to, to Warner Brothers, the Capri uh, 1979 iconic venue. And they're about to start changing the Capri. They're starting to renovate it. So they're going to add a, a, a new extension, a wing onto the original theatre. I went to see it last year. Um, we were invited in informally to just have a look around. And um, we were shown some photographs that had never been seen uh, by the general public. And I made a donation on the way out. And this year, uh, the guys who work there um, suggested that it was because of that that they'd opened it up. Uh, sorry, it was 2017 when, when we went to see it. So the last two years, they've opened it up and, and allowed tours. But it, they directly said it was because my friend and I had, had left a donation at the end that they suddenly realised there was, there was value in this and that Prince fans during the celebration week would want to see inside the Capri. So this year, it's a self-guided tour. Uh, they had uh, a rolling slideshow of Prince pictures and uh, some songs playing, and you were able to just go in, go up on the stage, see what it would have been like in, in what is quite a small theatre. I believe the capacity is about 250, and it's amazing to be able to stand in the place where, where Prince stood to see how it would have felt for him to perform there in a venue that was very close to his heart. You know, it's it's one of the, the major theatres uh, in northern Minneapolis, the, the area that he would have grown up in. So that was the start of Wednesday the 24th. Then I hopped for today over back to Chanhassen, um, and I wanted to go and see uh, the mural that is on the side of Chanhassen Cinema. So Chanhassen being the area where Paisley Park is based, that the studios are in Chanhassen. The Chanhassen Cinema mural is fantastic. Um, it's, a, it's a real great thing to go and take your photo and see if you can put your hand under one, one of the doves um, in the photo. There's another famous mural uh, up on Hennepin Ave um, that I'd also taken pictures of on the way back from, from the Capri. So it was very much me just collecting some photos of what things looked like on this this trip. So after I'd uh, been to the Chanhassen Cinema Mural, I then went to Chanhassen Library. Chanhassen Library uh, hosted an evening for the Purple Playground. 
which Heidi and Willie, uh, two Prince alumni, PRN alumni, are trying to, to bring music education to kids uh, in the name of Prince. So it's, it's something that I think is, is a great endeavor. Uh, the kids clearly were having great fun. Um, it's really exposing them to some great things. Um, and I'm happy to be one of the, the contributors uh, to the funding of that in, in a very modest way. And I hope they can, they can keep going because they're doing great things. I also hope that Paisley Park open up the doors and perhaps let the, the kids use one of the studios there um, to really solidify that, that, that intention, that, that link to Prince. So that was great, uh, really nice to see. And everybody seemed to, to disappear out of the Chanhassen Library and go straight over to Gluck's in downtown Minneapolis. Now, Gluck's was the site of the Paisley Five and Dime. Uh, big shout out to Rodney. So we all headed over there for the celebration kickoff party. Now, Gluck's is just over the road from, from First Avenue. Um, good location. It's it's what in, in Britain we would call, you know, a pub. Um, but it's a real proper drinker's bar. Incredibly loud music. Uh, we had... Uh, DJ Nevermind, DJ, DJ Spooky, uh, the Tracy Blake Project were all performing there throughout the night. But it was just a, an amazing place to, to see all the faces that you kind of recognize. So uh, Bobby Z was there from the Revolution. St. Paul Peterson was there. But the podcast community was all being represented. Um, Michael Dean was floating between there and, and another event uh, just around the corner. Rodney was there, you know, always great to see him. He's a fantastic guy. I love him to bits. Um, I also met the author, Dwayne Tudal. Now, Dwayne wrote uh, the absolutely seminal, and, and if you don't have it, go buy it now on paperback, hardback, uh, the audio book. In some way, you need this in your life. It's the Purple Rain era, the studio sessions, 1983, 1984, this is the period where Prince goes from being, remember the segregation of music at that time. Uh, he's a he's an artist in 1983 who's had a few hits, uh, big hits, but he's very much an R&B artist. And by the end of 1984, he starred in and won every award possible, number one album, number one single, number one movie. He's a megastar because of Purple Rain. Now, in those two years, he writes all the music for the movie. He writes the uh, album for the time that goes with the movie. He writes an album for Vanity 6 and then changes a lot of that material to become Apollonia 6, who we're going to feature in the movie. He writes, of course, uh, all of the score for Purple Rain. He does a family album the family album he does an album for sheila e it's an amazing amount of work that he, he achieves in these two years and yes he's a young man but he's, he's prodigiously talented and the, the sheer volume and the caliber of the music that comes through in that period means it's probably the most pivotal two years in prince's entire career and Dwayne tudal i don't know how well we do know how because he, he's told us but I don't know how he was able to, to weave the narrative that he manages to do 
in what is essentially a diary of those two years. It's each day, what did Prince do? What did he record? Where did he perform? And it's it's a quite fantastic undertaking. So to be able to say hello to him formally and not just over emails, uh, to shake his hand was great. And he was integral uh, throughout the, the days of the celebration. He hosted the panels with the revolution. Fantastic guy. Uh, great to see him. So the, the kickoff party at Gluck's was really just a great way to, to bring everybody together to start building that, that feeling that, you know, this is the Purple family. And what we're going out to do at that celebration is exactly that. It's, it's family, musical family coming together to honour Prince. So it was a fantastic thing to, uh, to, to be there. Incredibly loud. You could barely hear uh, the other person when you were trying to have a conversation. But I met people there that I was able to then say hello to throughout the entire uh, celebration uh, four days. And I, I wouldn't have swapped that for anything. So I was really glad that I went to, to that. And um, I look forward to the, the 2021. Um, and hopefully Rodney's going to be able to, to match that and put something else on that's equally as good. So that takes us to the end of Wednesday the 24th. Thursday 25th is day one of the celebration. Now we're going to end here because this has gone far longer than I anticipated and if you're still with me, thank you so much. Um, it's very much just the start. I have copious notes that have been put together since the celebration. I can speak with great detail to the four days of the celebration. So if you weren't able to attend, if you were able to attend and your mind is getting a little bit murky, uh, your memory is getting a little bit murky, you're going to love the four episodes that are going to follow this. For this episode, I just really wanted to introduce myself. I wanted to speak to uh, my history with Prince and also cover that that little bit of time that I was out in Minnesota before everybody else arrived, just laying the foundations ready for the celebration four days. So I'm going to sign off now. You can find me at this address, purplecelebration.com. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer in subsequent podcasts the, after the, the four daily reviews, uh, again, this email, send any questions and I'll do my best to answer them. If you're listening on uh, a podcast, please leave a review. If you're watching on YouTube, please leave a comment. It will mean the world to me to know that people are watching this and if anyone's taken any enjoyment out of it, then that would be even better. So, that's it for this episode. I'm going to come straight back and film the next episode where we talk about day one of the celebration. Thank you very much. This is Purple Celebration. And we're out.